Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Hi, I'm Penny Worsing, President of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Yelena Kovacevic, who became the first female dean at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering last year. Raised in Serbia in the city of Belgrade, Yelena earned an electrical engineering degree from the University of Belgrade before moving to New York City to attend Columbia University. She credits her upbringing in Belgrade, uh, math games involving Serbian crepes, which I hope we'll hear more about, um, amazing primary school education, and family encouragement as the motivation for pursuing STEM. Within months of joining NYU's faculty, Yelena has been honored by Cranes as a notable woman in tech, and City and State as one of the most powerful New Yorkers in higher education. And she was profiled in the New York Times. So there's lots of great publicity out there on her. Um, in her new role at Tandon, she's committed to getting more women interested in technology. So thanks for joining us today, Yelena. My pleasure. Okay, so let's get started. You have written about growing up in the ex-Yugoslavia, where women were expected to be able to do anything, including mathematics and engineering. How did those early expectations influence you as you studied at Columbia and later worked at Bell Labs, at your own company, Carnegie Mellon, and NYU Tandon? Thank you. I, it, it's, it's really a great question. And I know that we all uh, are aware of how important the early experiences are. You mentioned Serbian crepes. That's a reference to my dad, uh, who used to play these math games with me when I was a kid. And, and he would say, like, your mom made, you know, eight crepes and your brother ate three. How many are left? But it was all a game. And, and so I thought from the very, very early age, I mean, as far back as I can remember, maybe three years old, that math was this really super fun thing and i would i would do it for fun i would just do puzzles and games and and look at patterns and so on and so this this early experience really um sort of gave me a little bit of immunity towards perhaps what would happen later in life and what i would see of you know, perhaps girl being discouraged from pursuing uh, math and science and engineering or not being encouraged to, to put it this way. So as I was growing up, I had huge support from my parents. Uh, they, they were thrilled that, you know, I loved this. And, and you know, in any case, if, even if they hadn't been right, this is what I wanted to do. And, and so I did it. And in some sense, it, it, as I said, it provided some immunity for me, which was um, in in one way, it was good because it protected me from probably barbs coming my way or comments and so on. Um, at the same time, it sort of put blinders. So 
when I came to Columbia, I was one of a handful of women in the electrical engineering department. And I kind of noticed it, but that was it. It was just, oh, you know, there's not that many of us and just continue doing my thing. And along the years, there would be comments. I was at the at the conference. Uh, I was fresh PhD, and I was preparing to deliver actually a, um, a tutorial, which typically you know more senior people do. And I could see that people in the audience were sort of ignoring me, thinking you know this is probably some sort of a aid uh, helping to put slides together. These were transparencies at the time. There was really, you were not projecting from the computer exactly. And, um, you know, I remember distinctly uh, when I stepped up to the stage and started speaking that they looked shocked. Um, And I don't know why they will look shocked. Because I was a woman, because I was a young woman, because I was plain young. I don't know, right? But I I just (laughs) thought it was funny. I thought this was... (laughs) terribly funny and I kind of enjoy these things of defying expectations. But when I became a department head at at CMU and I sort of got um, the responsibility of taking care of other people, making sure that our students and faculty and staff and everybody else has an environment which is conducive to everybody's um, productive work. I started listening to stories. I had lots of listening sessions with students as I do as I do here. So in all these institutions, I started learning more and not that I was not aware, but it, it, it really came into sharp focus, really how lucky I was. And this is what I keep on saying. I was really lucky. I was lucky to grow up in an environment when my parents were extremely supportive, where my school was amazing, where everybody I came across uh, or most people were super supportive of what I wanted to do. But that doesn't mean that everybody is, right? And so in some sense, this made me feel this huge responsibility to do something for those who are not as lucky as I am. Um, and and that's what, what I think turned things around for me. So as a, you know, as a scientist and engineers and so on, when we do a piece of research, what we do first is we do literature search, right? So we look at what's available in the community, what have people done, kind of summarize it for yourself, find gaps and so on. And this is what I did. I very systematically started educating myself about, you know, in particular, let's say women in engineering. And and I started listening to stories because it's really important not only to see the numbers, to understand what's what underlies those numbers. What does this mean? Just yesterday, I was talking to a student at Tandon, uh, 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 a man, uh, who told me, and he's forming, he, he has his own company, and one of his passions is to support women in engineering. And I said, why? He says, well, he has a little sister, and she was told by, just a few years ago, by her guidance counselor, oh, don't go into engineering, this is for boys, right? So if this happens today, really? right, yes, if this happens oh to, yes. And so he said he was really apoplectic about this, and you know, you know, told her, of course, you know, she's lucky she has an older brother and she has other people in her life who told her, you know, don't listen to this, if this is what you want to do, right? So I think in some sense, this immunity from my early childhood has made me, you know, lucky in a sense that even if there were things coming my way, perhaps I didn't see them or I didn't feel them so strongly. On the other hand, it has... um, 
you know, stop me from seeing certain of the things that we could be doing. And, and, you know, that's what we do now. That's incredible. And, and it's such a testament to the impact of support and that attitude that you can do anything you want. Um, so obviously not everyone has that support as they're growing up. Although I'm really surprised that a guidance counselor said that just recently. It's really <laughs> yes, sad. It is indeed. Um, so what would you prescribe for parents and early education teachers in the United States who want to launch girls toward engineering opportunities? Uh, so this is another great question, and it really hits uh, close to home for me because I have a daughter. She's 25 now, and she just graduated with a master's in nursing. Um, and when she was growing up, she also loved math, but you know she went another another way, more science and and you know people. She wanted to marry those two things that she loved, and I felt. Um, even though both, you know, I'm an academic and my husband is a computer scientist, uh, you know, we sort of felt the best way we could do is really expose her to things and then let her pick her own things. And, you know, she had all kinds of wishes over the years. And she said, like all the kids, you know, what she's going to be when she grows up. But in the end, she found her own path. So that's one, I think, um, one thing I learned myself, that it was really powerful to just let her explore a wide range of things and then figure out what made sense for her. Now, of course, again, not everybody's going to have this. So it's really important to have um, things that are systematically and systemically built into our educational process to allow those who don't have a supportive environment from, for whatever reason, um, not because maybe they're not supportive or maybe because those parents don't really know what engineering is. You know, people still think of engineering as at times, you know, with men in hard hats. I mean, that's not what engineering is. You do medical robotics and environmental studies and sustainability and building new materials and, you know, wireless and security and all kinds of things that are very cool and impactful on society. So, for example, what we do here is we have a K-12 STEM education center um, that runs one of the largest summer STEM camps in the city. And it's one of the largest programs in the country where a quarter of our tenure, um, tenure track professors participate. And about 5,000 middle and high school students have come to campus and tens of thousands is educated off campus. It's also important because we educate teachers. So our goal is to reach up to 50,000 high school kids, um, K through 12 uh, kids in New York City through educating 500 teachers. We're not there yet. So exposing kids and especially girls to what engineering is and what the connection, you know, impact on society is. There is some research that shows um, that women respond more favorably or strongly to those disciplines where there is a direct link between what they do and uh, impact on society. Um, that's something one can use, right, to illustrate what we do. So not only the technical details, which we as engineers love to be embroiled in, right, but we forget to speak like lay people, right, and to say, here is what we do and how this could uh, improve lives of, of many people around the globe, right? 
And so I think that that's, that is a very, very important component and can, um, can inform on how we speak to people and how we speak to students. So it's one of the most important things we can do is also to when we get students on campus, when they come and look at us, when we talk about what we do, really to stress the impact, to say, okay, here are these things that you have to learn and do, but eventually it could lead to, you know, A, B, C, D. It could lead to less poverty, or it could be lead to safer water supply, or, you know, you name it. And hopefully gone are the days when you're talking to students about engineering and, and the focus is on, oh, you must be good at math, because that's typically not something that's going to encourage students to want to jump in. Um, when I talk to students, I say, wow, if you want to solve problems that will change the world, then engineering is a really good way to do that. It just gives them a whole different perspective. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you look at how kids come prepared or not prepared to, uh, let's say, a university, you could see, and, and many schools have done this successfully, that um, boys would be usually hacking more in their teenage years than girls. I hate to generalize it, but there are numbers that support this. And so schools who would not take this specifically into account would do a better job of encouraging or, you know, getting more girls into their ranks. And so, for example, in uh, other things are really support one they're in, while they're in school. So our computer science and engineering department held free online post-semester review sessions for introductory courses to help students who passed with marginal grades uh, before taking the next courses, right? So then we, you know, they also did workshops for faculty to improve classroom experience. So it's not enough to get the kids into the classrooms and on campus. I mean, classroom experience is just a, a small part of what happens, right? There has to be an experience that's going to be inclusive and women have, have, have to, you know, everybody needs to feel supported, right? Not only women, but here we are talking about women in particular. So we have a a number of things that we have done, for example, a womb mentorship, so mentorship for women. And so it's a peer mentoring program for undergraduate and graduate women um, who come together and build relationship as a community. And there are programs where senior and junior women um, and graduate women mentor younger women, you know, coming into, into our school. And, you know, we are not unique in this. Um, Lots of schools around the country are trying various things to do that. But I have to say, um, and, you know, I can't take much credit for it. I, I came here a year ago. Much of this predates me, but I'm very proud of it, that people have strategically looked at what the issues are and how to reach these young women. And our numbers are soaring. So last year, when we looked at the, you know, the ratio of admitted to applied students, 43% were women. This year, it's 47%. And it's gone up by, I think, almost 20% over the past decade. And these numbers are, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of this. Thank you. And these numbers are more than twice the national average. So that's really encouraging that there are things one can do very strategically, very pointedly in a focused manner, but it's not... Uh, it, it cannot be skin deep. It really has to then translate 
into the classroom and onto the campus and even beyond campus. And many of these things are beyond our control, but one poor experience can turn somebody off from, you know, doing this. Absolutely. And, and similarly, one really positive experience might open up a whole new world of opportunity for someone. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we all hear of stories of, you know, people who tell us, oh, my God, I still remember my, I don't know, third grade teacher. Or I still remember somebody in high school who told me this, spend half an hour with me, and I felt this completely changed my outlook. I mean, imagine actually how little it takes to push people one way or the other, right? To encourage them or discourage them. It's, it's, it's almost scary. You know, in, in one sense, it's encouraging, right? But the other way, you know, it's, it's really, really scary because our words and actions really, really matter. They really do. Those, and those are some impressive numbers. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, Thank hopefully you. more universities will be following along that path. Actually, it's really great when you come on campus and, and see it. It's one, say, one thing to say the number, but it's another thing to get into a classroom or walk on campus and hmm, it looks like, okay, you know, like a regular environment. You know, you wouldn't think that this is what, or normally people wouldn't associate this with an engineering school or a technology school, right? Mm, that is great. Okay, I'm going to change gears just a little bit here, although that's a great conversation and I could continue that all day. Um, you have been working vigorously for five years now, I'm sure longer, but, but five years now to attract and support women. Uh, first, as the head of Carnegie Mellon's electrical and computer engineering department, and now as the first female dean at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering. What have you found to be most effective, and have there been any surprises along the way? So I would say, um, I, th I think what I found most effective is, as I said, we, we got really educated, we looked at research, we looked at what works, what doesn't work, um, and uh, thought about this problem, and, and still do, in sort of as this vertical line that goes from kids to, you know, in elementary school, middle school, high school, to prospective students, to students who then apply and come on campus and then their experience on campus, what happens to them when they leave, as well as, you know, our faculty lines, you know, how do we attract uh, female faculty? How do we make an environment that's conducive to uh, their development? Basically looking at it, you know, holistically, because they're all intertwined, you know, faculty who teach students will have an impact on what kind of an experience they're going to have. And um, I don't know about surprises. I, th I think I told you that I myself had some surprises when I started really listening to kids and experiences they've had. Um, and, you know, listening to a kid who's the age, even if they weren't, but, you know, the age of, let's say, or, you know, my own kid, makes you think of each one of them as their, as your own kid. And, and you know, you really um, empathize and, you know, you grieve for them and, you know, you're mad on their behalf. And then, you know, that, you know, translates into some kind of action. So by no means um, are these issues um, solved. Um, you have, like, one thing that, that, as you said, you know, what's a surprise? The surprise is when, when I started reading, you know, articles about women 
uh, leaving Silicon Valley companies. So we educate these amazing young women, you know, they come in great numbers and then they go into an environment that's, you know, to put it mildly hostile, at least, you know, there was a, a whole bunch of, you know, articles and issues. And, you know, you have companies who do it great, but not everywhere. And it's, it's I think what's surprising is that it's a young field, right? Silicon Valley is kind of a young enterprise. And so why would that be the case? We always think that, oh, you know, let's say gender equality in STEM is, you know, going to be sold when the new generation comes in and, you know, all the old people leave, you know, which I count myself among right now. But I don't know that that's true, right? Because uh, you still you still see it at, at different levels. Um, and I don't know that I have a solution. I still think we, we flood the pipeline, right? The more women go into these positions, the more women rise to through the ranks, um, the more men are aware of the issues, you know, women face. I am kind of a glass half full person. I always tend to think that most of the issues rise out of, um, out of really not being aware. And as soon as you make a personal connection with someone and you understand their story and their life, you will behave differently. I mean, you, you see this, you know, you hear these stories and numbers and, you know, in the gay community, you know, when somebody is, you know, maybe on religious grounds, uh, sort of anti-gay, but then they have somebody in the family or know someone they love, they start changing. You have to, right? You know, we are human. So I think having people be aware of the experiences and uh, being able to do something, so that's not the woman's problem, right? It's everybody's problem, you know. It's just, otherwise, we're ignoring half half humanity, right? Makes no sense. It's so frustrating to have anyone, but particularly the larger number of women, go through all the effort to get an engineering degree and have the opportunity to solve problems to make the world a better place, and then a few years into it, they decide to leave because they don't see themselves in a career there. It's such a loss. And that's why male male allies are really critical. We actually have formal group of male allies who are part of our women attendant committee. So it's a women attendant committee that has men in it, which you know I think is fabulous, right? That's what we should be doing because it we should all be working. I mean, at the university, these are all our kids, right? So we all men and women have to make sure. I mean, we are talking about women, but that you know, applies to any underrepresented minority kid or people who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or first-generation students, they all face issues. They're just different issues. We just have to be sort of mindful and thoughtful about how to address them. And speaking of that, you've mentioned some of the obstacles you faced as a woman in engineering. What are some of the other obstacles you faced and how did you overcome them? Well, you know what, I I'd, I, I think I, I spoke of this before, how when I think of it, I really do consider myself extremely lucky. Um, and, and, you know, some people will say, no, but this happened and that happened. I don't really consider that, you know, I in particular faced significant obstacles, again, because I compare it to what real obstacles may be. 
Um, so, you know, I was, um, I was sort of immunized early on. And that's also where I think the power of parents and early education is, is so important because it can protect you for years to come. I mean, to, to this day, and I'm 56, right? So that's, that's really important. I think it's more important to think about how to put safeguards in the system and elements into whatever we do locally. So locally for me, this is higher education. Um, so that these, you know, whatever obstacles there may be, we can help our students navigate and, you know, fight them. And we won't be able to solve everything for everybody. And you no, know, that's okay too. Makes us resilient in some way, but we have to keep on trying. Well, hopefully, um, we can have this conversation in 10 years and it will be a very different one. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yes. Actually, you know what, what I want to do? I don't want to have well, this conversation. That yes, will be the day, yes. right? If we don't have these conversations anymore, that means it's yeah. not an issue anymore. But, you know, <laughs> yes, we can let's hope, hope for that, that right? Um, so another question that we kind of touched on before, recognizing that once graduates leave academia, women do face extraordinary hurdles in male-dominated tech industries. And um, we've talked about that a little bit. Is there any other advice you can offer to these women? Well, I think uh, your network. Networks are incredibly important. They provide amazing support. Um, we, we can see this in our own student chapter of SWE. Um, for example, it took a record number of women to the national conference, and all of them, 100%, said that they would recommend this to their friends. That's amazing, right? It is. It, it really invest- is an incredible experience. Yeah, we need. Um, we invested more money to send more students to such conferences. Um, actually, this was one of. No, this was the first item that the student council brought to me that they would like more you know, financial support, and I gave them a, a task, sort of a homework. I said, go collect the numbers, how many people would like to go? And we quintupled the support for them to go, not only to SWE, but to, you know, to NSBE, to SHIP, to all the professional conferences. And for, for SWE, for example, uh, we got some numbers back. And as I said, all of them said they would recommend it to their friends, but Almost all of them, like 93%, said that they made meaningful professional connections oh and gosh. they will serve them, you know, throughout their careers. Yeah. And 86% received on-spot interviews, you know, with companies like Boeing and TI and Verizon and so on. So this is amazing. And also, it, you know, I mean, I am preaching to the choir because you're the president of SWE, right? <laughs> yeah, that's but okay. it is... <laughs> This is like, you know, when we get also with friends or, you know, it just helps to share experiences, to feel heard and supported, and also um, hear from other people what they have done in a similar situation to help you navigate an obstacle or a problem or career and so on. I think more of this will help. And again, as I said, male allies are really, really important. And, you know, you have a number of companies who are they doing, uh, you know, a great job of, of uh, supporting women and promoting and, and um, doing really the right thing for, it's not only because it's, if you want, morally the right thing, it's also professionally the right thing. I mean, there is research, plenty of research that shows when you have a group of diverse members, diverse in any sense, right? Gender, race, 
you know, cultural background and so on, they perform better. Why? Because they bring a wealth of diverse experiences. You know, you clone yourself five times and I clone myself five times. What did we get? You know, five of you and five of me. That's, you know, useless, right? Instead of listening to, you know, people who have gone through different experiences and can offer something new, usually is the the innovation factor um, that creates uh, creates new things, you know, new technology or whatever, you know, work that you're doing. Yeah, it is amazing that with all the research out there, there are still companies that just ignore that and, and just continue, you know, hiring uh, clones of themselves. <laughs> so, okay, so if you could give, and this is always a tough question, <laughs> if you could give any one piece of advice <laughs> or more uh, to current engineers who'd like to move into academia, what would it be? Well, the first thing I think is uh, there has to be something that you as a person really want to do, that there is a passion for it. I feel, you know, I've worked at Bell Labs for 11 years. I loved it. But I think when I stepped foot on Carnegie Mellon campus, that was my first academic job, I felt like I came home. So the fact that, you know, I'm around, you know, kids all the time is really something that makes what I do meaningful. I want to do something, I guess we are lucky in a sense that as, as engineers, at least, we have, we have a choice, especially today. Technology is exploding. You could get, go and make loads of money in a company. So we have a choice. And so my choice is you know, to be in education because I think it makes me feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. It makes me feel that every day, no matter what happens, and there are lots of things that are not fun all the time, that eventually there is a purpose to what I do. And I think that's the most important thing, a sense of purpose. The other thing that I would say, and I don't know that this is specific to academia, is that, you know, put yourself in an uncomfortable position. You know, if I, if I look back at what I've, if what I've done, like every 10 years or so, I've, I've moved fields, I've moved what I've done, and, you know, I don't know that I do it consciously that I say, oh, 10 years is up, I have to do something new. But I guess I've got this itch, okay, I want to, you know, try something new. And every time I've done, I've gone into a situation where, you know, there was a lot I didn't know. Um, I was in unknown waters. I changed completely from communications to biomedical engineering in 2003 when I went to Carnegie Mellon. And so I was an unknown entity to people you know, in that area. But I thought this was great. I learned a lot. And eventually, you know, when I look back, it, it, these are the best opportunities to grow, for growth for anybody. So I'm really happy I did it. At the time, it's not, it's not an easy place to be in because let's say you go as an expert from one field to another where you're not an expert. All of a sudden, you have to start learning again. But I think that's the incredibly exciting part about what we do. And that's true, even if you're not in academia. I know when I've changed jobs, I've gone from being truly an expert in whatever job it was, and then I, I get promoted or move to a new facility, and all of a sudden, for even the most basic questions, I have to say, um, back to you on that. Yeah, let me, let me, exactly, yes, indeed. And it's, it's in, I think it's a good way to be humbled every once in a while, right, to understand how much we don't know. 
I think as as people who are, especially people in academia, we have to learn all, all our lives because that's what our job is, right? We have to move with the times. Um, and at the same time, it's really incredibly, it's like an adrenaline rush to get into something new. And the whole new thing is a kind of explodes in front of you. Right now, that field for me is NYU attendant, right? So yes, I was a department head of EC at Carnegie Mellon, but that was a different university, was a different set of people. You know, you come in, you don't know anybody, you know three people, right? So first you have to start building connections and get to know everybody and understand how the place works. I mean, it's really like a, one can use a methodology like we do in our work. Okay, let's figure out what's on the ground. Let's figure out what's missing, what the you know great uh, points are, what's missing. And then kind of move to plug those holes and have a vision to push it somewhere else. So that's exciting. Okay, I have one last question. I'm going to go off script here just a little bit. But I've noticed when I was looking at your pictures and your videos that you're always wearing this fantastic jewelry. I mean, really <laughs> cool stuff. Any, any story behind that? I don't know that, that there is a deep story. I like kind of... Uh, nice design, so I don't think I go for like expensive pieces if you want, you know, for uh, precious stones. I just get attracted to design. There is this one particular company, Uno, uh, I think it's a Spanish company that produces the jewelry that has lots of uh, leather and, and silver and these are types of things I like. And, you know, in the end, you know, I like being a girl, right? I like jewelry. I like clothes. I like makeup. But I also love math and engineering and what they do. And and this, I think, is also important for people to understand. One doesn't exclude the other. They're not mutually exclusive. They're, they're all parts of our identities. Oh, absolutely. And you remember the um, I look like an engineering movement? Where people just said, look, this, you know, this very smart young woman, because she was also good looking, they said, oh, she cannot possibly be, a, you know, a software engineer. I mean, that's, that's, and I, I understand where the, these biases come from. Biases come from experiences. So if you have just seen men engineers, well, that's what you're going to do. But today things are changing. So hopefully... Cool women in cool uh, cool jewelry will be synonymous with engineering, right? There you go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yelena, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing your incredible story of your unique upbringing and your journey to become a successful woman, really successful woman in engineering and academia here in the U.S. Your story is so inspiring. Thank you, Penny, so much. And, and let me take a moment to thank you and Sui for all the amazing things you, you do for our young and not so young women like us. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm Penny Worsing for all of us at Sui. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud. If you have not already made plans to be part of the largest gathering of women engineers in the world, visit our WE18 conference site, we18.swe.org. Information on housing, registration, and keynote speakers is now available. 